If I was to ask you to describe yourself, what words would you use? In fact, if I was to say to you, okay, pick the five, top five adjectives that describe who you are, what words would you pick? What would you land on? It might be difficult to think about what words that you would choose to describe yourself, but how about this? Uh, what words wouldn't you use? What words don't describe who you are? That might be a little bit easier to come up with. I tell you one of the words that I wouldn't use uh, for myself, and I'm guessing, I'm guessing kind of because of where we live, the part of the country we live, and just knowing people in general, that maybe this is a word that you wouldn't make the top five for you either. And one of the words that wouldn't make my top five, maybe it doesn't make your top five either, is the word patient. If I was to come up with the top five words that describe me, Patient probably wouldn't crack the top five, and I'm guessing for most of us, that's not a word that would crack the top five, especially in our culture. Uh, patient, being willing to wait, uh, is not really something that we're, we're into, and we do a lot to try to reduce waiting times. And if you're asking yourself, well, I wonder if I am a patient person, think about how you feel when you're in rush hour traffic, and that person in front of you is texting and doesn't realize the light is green. Like that feeling that comes over you, I think, reminds us all that we're not as patient as we may think that we are. A lot of times we are impatient. Uh, in fact, some of you are just visibly angry. Just, I just mentioned that that happens. And some people I can see that really bothers you when that happens. We do a lot to try to reduce wait times, don't we? There's a lot of things that we do, used to be go to the RMV, go to the store, and stand in line to do that now we can just do online, that we can do very quickly. And so we've done a lot to try to reduce waiting times and make things quicker. And the fact that we don't like to wait, we now, if we do have to wait for something, we get informed as to how long we're going to have to wait. So if you have to go to the RMV now, if you're renewing your driver's license or something else, when you walk in, they have the wait times. If you're, if you're waiting to renew your license, you're about 20 minutes. If you're waiting to, you know, do anything else, you're about seven hours. And so they have the wait times right there so you know. You go to an amusement park now, and they'll tell you how long the line is. The line is 60 minutes from this point, or it's 90 minutes for the, from this point. If you wait for an MBTA train, you go down and you wait for the commuter rail, or you wait for a normal subway train, you know, one of the lines, there's signs now at all the stops, aren't there, that have the time that it's going to take for the next train to get to you. Those didn't used to be there. People used to just be willing to stand on the platform and wait, but to slow, you know, stop the unrest and stop all the impatience, they now broadcast the time. So you know, all right, it's going to be three more minutes. Because the reality is that for most of us, it is difficult for us to wait on things, isn't it? It's difficult for us to be patient. I think one of the most difficult times to be patient, one of the hardest times to wait, is when we're in a situation in which the result or the outcome of a, of a problem or a situation depends on another person. It's really difficult for us to wait when we're in a situation where we're not going to get out of that situation unless someone else does something. So you board your airplane, right, and you sit in your airplane, and they push back from the gate and they come on the, the radio there, the announcement deal, and they say to you, uh, you know, we've just been informed uh, that we need to change a tire on the plane or that a mechanic needs to come look at something, and we're really not sure how long it's going to take for a mechanic to come. Right? You may have been in that situation. You're already pushed back away from the jetway. The door is closed. You're not going back, and now you're totally dependent 
on someone else to come and check something with the plane or give the pilot some information so you can move. And then you move, and you move out to the tarmac, and you stop again, and the pilot says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're 13th in line for takeoff, but we'll be there shortly. And it's just one of those situations where it's so hard to wait, isn't it, when the outcome is dependent on another person, when you're waiting for the waiter to bring the food, and it's been way too long, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just need this person to bring the food, and you're hungry. Those are difficult times to wait. I remember uh, in 2010, November of 2010, uh, Lori and I, along with some other people, we went to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and it was the year of uh, the earthquake, that terrible earthquake that had taken place in Port-au-Prince. So in January 2010, the earthquake took place, and then uh, later that year in November, just 10 months after the earthquake, we went and and went to help rebuild uh, a church that was there in Haiti that had come down in the earthquake. And we came with our whole team, and, and even though it was 10 months from the earthquake, things in Port-au-Prince were still pretty unstable. There were tens of thousands of people living in tent cities, and uh, there weren't a lot of supplies that were available. So everything that we needed for the trip, we had to pack and bring with us. Uh, so if you, we had to bring everything that we needed for the week. So it was all with us, and we landed in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and we went to go through customs and immigration and get our luggage. And even the airport was still unsafe. There was a giant crack you could see down the back of the airport. So no one was allowed into the airport building. And they had created some sort of temporary structure out on the tarmac. And inside that temporary structure, all the customs and immigration and getting your luggage happened. And so we walked through, and it was very, uh, you know, um, it wasn't chaotic, but it was just very temporary. Folding tables and things like that to, to process passports. And we got to the conveyor belt where luggage was coming out, and all the luggage was coming out, and all the luggage came out, and everyone had their bags, except for my lovely wife, Lori. And so there was a little concern, because everything that we needed was in the bags. And there was really no way at that point in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to get supplies. Things like toothbrushes, and deodorant, and contact solution were just not available anywhere to buy. And so uh, we were a little bit concerned, and then I saw it. I saw her bag on the conveyor belt coming down. So I grabbed that bag, and I went, and I, and I was re- getting ready to leave the airport, and one of the workers stopped me, and they said, I need to check your baggage tags to make sure you have the right bags. And I said, no problem. Hand them the baggage tags. They compared them, and they said, these aren't the same. And I said, no, this is my wife's bag. And they said, no, the ta- they don't match up. And I flipped over that name tag, and sure enough, exact same brand of bag, exact same color of bag, but it was not my wife's bag. And so you can imagine, we're very sort of out of sorts. The city is still uh, in, a, in a difficult place from this earthquake. We're in a brand new culture we've never been in. Everything that we need for the week is in that bag, and it is gone. And so my wife, um, you know, very courageously is in tears, and she's wondering how she's going to get through the week, and I'm wondering how I'm going to get through the week if we don't find this bag. And so uh, I decided to go over to the table, the airline table, which was also a folding table with two ladies behind it. And so I walked up to the folding table that was the airline customer service area. And I said, listen, we've lost a bag. And they said to me, I'm sure it will show up. I said, well, I think someone actually took it that thought it was their bag and left and is now at large in Port-au-Prince. I don't think it's ever coming back. They're like, no, it'll come back. And usually when I've been involved in lost luggage situations in other places, it involves a lot of computers, and it involves things like walkie-talkies and communication, 
And uh, I noticed that there were no walkie-talkies and there were no computers. And I said, well, is there any way like, we can track the bag? It has a barcode on it. It has a number. Oh, no, we don't have, we don't have anything with that. And, and I said, is there any way to communicate with the guys on the tarmac? No, but I'm sure the bag will show up. And I said, can we call? Can we call the airline and then they can track the bag for us? And they said, you know what? Our phones don't work. And I just remember standing there, and it was one of those situations where all I could do was just wait. And that bag was so important to us at the time. Everything we needed for the whole week was there. I didn't know how my wife was going to get through the week with no clothes and no bedding and no toiletries, nothing. And all we could do was just leave and go out into this new place and go to the place where we were staying, and she had to borrow everything for that night. And man, those are the most difficult places to wait, aren't they? That's when it's the most impatient, is when we are totally dependent on someone else. There's nothing that we can do to make things happen quicker, to make things go. We're just totally dependent on someone else to get it done. Those are hard places to wait. When we come to Psalm 40 this morning, David, David is in a place where he is just waiting. He's in a desperate place. David's in a desperate place where he needs someone to come And to help him out. And David also knows that he has zero capacity within himself to get himself out of the situation. So he's in this desperate place. Here he is. And he wants to get out of it. And he knows that he can't do anything on his own. The thing I notice about David in this psalm that we're going to read in just a moment. Is even though he's in a desperate place, he doesn't react the way I often react when I'm in a desperate place. When I'm in a place where I'm waiting for something and I can't do anything about it, I get nervous, I get anxious, I try to come up with another solution, I try to fix the problem, I try to get other people involved, I try to do everything that I can to fix that situation, but not David. David knows he's in a bad spot, and he's okay with it. He's relaxed, confident. And the question I want us to ask this morning in the next few minutes is how is it that David's able to be in a desperate place and have that sort of response? What does that mean for us as well? So Psalm chapter 40, this is one of my favorites. Psalm chapter 40, this is what it says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. No one can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. 
Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. And here's where David is right now. This last verse. As for me, I'm poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O Lord, my God. With those last few verses is David telling us where he is right now in his life. I am poor and needy, David says. And in fact, if you, if you flip back, these are some of the phrases that David uses. These are some of the phrases David uses to describe his current situation. Evils beyond number have encompassed me. My iniquity has overtaken me. My heart fails me. David, when he writes this psalm, is in a bad place. David's in one of those places where he is in a desperate place. He's in one of those places that happens spiritually where he's in a spot where he's stuck and only God can get him out. You know how those places are in life, right? Not just that you've lost a piece of luggage or that you're waiting for a train, but stuck in one of those places in life where only God can get him out. And what's funny about those places, not funny but ironic maybe about those places, is when we're in those places in our lives, even people that don't believe in God, even people that don't worship God, even people that don't honor God will call out to him in those places, won't they? God, if you're really real, you'll get me out of this. God, if you're really who everyone says that you are, you'll do something in this situation. It's those points where we're in severe financial distress, those points where relationships and families are broken and we don't know how it's going to be restored, those places where the diagnosis has come in and it's not good, those places where we are totally lost and totally depressed and totally alone and wondering how we're going to make it through the next day, all those places, whether we believe or in God or not, we find ourselves crying out to him and saying, God, I need you to do something here because there's absolutely nothing I can do on my own to get out of this mess. And then we have to go through this agonizing process of waiting God to, for God to do something. And that's right where David is. I'm poor and needy. Evils have overtaken me. My heart is failing me. But yet David isn't nervous. David's not afraid. David's not scared. And the reason comes right at the beginning of the psalm. The reason David can deal with this, the reason though David is in a desperate spot and we've been there depressed, alone, insecure, unsure, unknowing. We've been in those places needing redemption, needing restoration, needing forgiveness. The reason David can do it is because he's been there before. In the, verse, the verses at the front of the psalm, those first three verses, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I called out to him. You know what God did? God picked me up out of the mud and the mire and the clay and set my feet on rock. What's he talking about there? 
You know, David spent most of his life in a desert, in what's known as the Judean wilderness. It still exists today, and it's still very much a desert. And in the Judean wilderness, like in any desert, there are a number of things that could um, take someone's life or cause someone harm. And if you were to guess what the thing is in the Judean wilderness that causes the most deaths even until this day, you might guess that it's so hot, and you might guess that it is so dry, and you might guess that there's a lack of food, and you might guess that there are snakes and scorpions, and all those are true. But the number one thing that causes death in the Judean wilderness in David's day and today are flash floods. And I'll tell you what happens. It hardly ever rains in the Judean wilderness, but when it does, it rains way high up in the mountains where no one can notice the storms or it's difficult to notice the storm. And what happens is, is the rain forms up in the mountains and it hits the granite cliffs. The mountains in the Judean wilderness absorb none of the water because they're all hard granite. And the water gathers up in the mountains and then very unexpectedly, sometimes without people realizing that it's coming, the water begins to rush out of the mountainside, down the hills, and into dry riverbeds called wadis that most of the year stay perfectly dry. They're as hard and as packed as anything else in that desert. But when it floods, and the floodwaters come through, and then those floodwaters recede, what's left is a clay and a mud that's like quicksand. In fact, I was reading this week about some of the shepherds that still work in that area, and they'll tell you, after it rains and after it floods and the water comes through, if their sheep go and step where the water has come through, they will immediately sink up to their bellies in mud. That's like quicksand, and there is no way that they can get out of there. Well, you know who was a shepherd in the Judean wilderness, right? David was for years. And just like the shepherds today, I bet David knew, went through the same thing that the shepherds today go through, where he had his sheep, the floods would come through, they would leave the mud that's like quicksand, his sheep would walk in, they would sink up to their bellies, and if he left them there, they would either starve or they would drown the next time the flash flood came through. And what happens in the Judean wilderness, even to this day, is that people go down into the caverns that are created by the rushing water, and they're very dry, and people go down into those places, and they're hanging out, and they're looking around, and they're searching, and the water comes, and they don't even realize it's coming, and when the water flows through, they drown. And David says, that's the kind of place I was in. I was stuck up to my waist in that mud, and do you know what happened the last time I was in that place? I'm in that place again today, but do you know what happened the last time I was in that place? I called out to God, I waited patiently for him, and like the kind shepherd, God came and he grabbed me and he picked me up out of that mud and he set me back on the rock where I could stand firm. And David says to us in this psalm, I'm in a desperate place, I don't know how I'm getting out of this place, but I'll tell you one thing, God has delivered me in the past when it looked like I wasn't going to be able to get out at all, and so I know that God will deliver me this time as well. God did it in the past, and I know that he's going to do it today. And David says to us in this psalm, listen, God's deliverance is going to come. No matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter how poor and needy you may be, God's deliverance is going to come. It may not happen in the timing that we think that it should, but it's going to come, and God's deliverance is worth the wait. 
We say to David, how do you know it's going to come? And David's saying, because I've been here before. I've been in this place before, and the last time I was here, I called out to God, and he did it. And I know that if that I'm here again, that it may not be in my timing. I may have to wait patiently, but if I cry out to God, and I listen to him, and I honor him, God is going to do it again. And so at the end of the psalm, what David says is he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer, oh my God. And he's saying, listen. God's deliverance is worth the wait. We will wait for things that we've experienced before and and we like, right? If Justin Justin and I go to a restaurant that I've been to before and he's never been to and the wait's an hour and a half and it's my favorite restaurant, he'll say to me, "Uh, is it really worth it? Is it worth waiting here for an hour and a half? And I will say to him, trust me, it's worth it. Trust me, it is worth it for us to wait. And he will have to trust that, I, that my evaluation is correct, which might be kind of dicey, but that's all right. But he has to trust that I'm right. When I tell him, listen, it's worth the wait, that it will be worth the wait. And then when he experiences and he brings someone else and they say, is it really worth a two-hour wait for this restaurant? He will say, you have to listen to me. I promise you it's worth the wait. And when we know something is worth the wait, we will be willing to wait for it. When we're not sure if it's worth the wait, we get impatient about it. But when we know it's worth the wait, we will stand there. We rode the ride last time, and we loved it, and we don't care if the line's three hours long. We're going to wait in the line again because the ride is worth it at the end of the line. And those sorts of things, when we've experienced before, we know it's worth it. We will wait patiently. And David's saying, listen, I've experienced it before. I've experienced it before. I was in this place. Up to my waist in quicksand and mud. And I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. The imminent danger of the flash flood coming was right there at a moment's notice. And I called out to God, and he did it before. And so I know I'm poor and needy today, but he is going to do it again. The next day in Haiti, uh, one of our leaders' cell phone rings, and it was the airline. And they say, Good news. The guy who accidentally took your wife's bag brought it back and got his. And so we went and got my wife's bag less than 24 hours since we lost it. If I went back to Haiti with someone and they lost their bag and they were frantic and they went to the folding table with no computers and walkie-talkies and asked to track it and they said, our phones don't work, we don't know, but I'm sure it will work out. And they came back to me all flustered and said to me, I don't know what's going on. We're never going to find this bag. You know what I would say to them? It's going to work out. It's going to work out. I know it. How do I know it? Because I was in your spot. And it worked out. The bag came when I thought it wouldn't. That's exactly what David's saying to us. You are in a spot, some of us in this place this morning. You are in a desperate place. You don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know where the money's going to come from. You don't know where the healing's going to come from. You don't know when your family's going to get back together. You don't know when you're going to find the person that you're supposed to spend your life with. You don't know where any of this stuff is going to be solved. You don't know how you're going to forgive. You don't know how other people are going to forgive you. You're right in that place. And what David is saying to you this morning is, listen, I have been there as well. I've been in that spot. And when I was there, I cried out to God, and he delivered me. And I'm telling you that if you will cry out to God, wait patiently for him, that he will deliver you as well. And David's saying, listen, God's deliverance is worth the wait. 
One final story. In 1971, there was this little rural airfield outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And the guy that ran the airstrip, it was just didn't have much action, you know, just some like uh, crop dusting planes, things like that, a very small regional airport. The guy who ran the airport uh, was with his local pastor, a pastor by the name of Slim Corbett, the perfect pastor in the Mississippi name, isn't it? Slim Corbett, the old pastor there from Jackson, Mississippi. And they were out at the airfield, and uh, he was showing his pastor how everything worked. So he said to his pastor, uh, listen, you know, if we were, had a plane that was in distress right now, here's the switches we would use. Here's the control tower. Here's what we do. And he brought him to this panel, and he said, if a plane was in distress in the sky, there's certain lights that we use, and these are the switches that control those lights. And so he started showing his pastor the lights. See, you flip on this light, and a green light comes on. You flip on this light, and the runway gets lit up, and then that's what we do. And as he was showing his pastor these things, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a little small two-seater plane came out of the sky and landed on the runway. They weren't expecting any planes. They had had no radio contact from the control tower. And so they ran out, and out of the plane stepped two men, one a flight instructor and the other a man by the name of Franklin Graham, who's Billy Graham's son. You know Billy Graham, the big evangelist Billy Graham, used to fill stadiums, that Billy Graham. His son, Franklin Graham, who's still very well known, he runs a ministry called Samaritan's Purse around the world, um, and is still a very public figure. Uh, So Franklin Graham was in college, and he was taking flying lessons. And this is how Franklin Graham tells it. Franklin Graham writes that, he and his flight instructor left Vero Beach, Florida, headed for Longview, Texas. And they were going to cross the Gulf of Mexico. There was a big storm in the Gulf of Mexico that caused them to go north over Mississippi. While they were flying over Mississippi, Franklin Graham writes that the panels started to flicker. And one light went out, and then another light went out, and pretty soon all their controls were lost. All the electricity in the plane went out. They had no radio. They had, no, uh, they had to lower the, the landing gear manually. They had no instruments. And so they did the only thing they knew to do. They were in a desperate situation. They did the only thing they knew to do, and that is they descended below the clouds, and they started to fly a slow, what's called an emergency triangle in their plane, hoping that with no lights on the plane, in the night sky, someone would notice and light up an airfield. So they're flying in this emergency triangle, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a green light comes on, the signal to land. And so they start to pull around towards the green light, and they start to land, and then out of nowhere, unexpectedly, lights turn on, and there's a runway in front of them. And Franklin Graham got out of that plane, and he said, my dad prayed over me before I took that flight that I would be protected. And we were in the most desperate situation that we could ever find ourselves in. And because some rural airplane runway operator was showing his pastor how the emergency lights worked, we landed safely. I know some of you are in that plane today. 
The instruments are gone. You are in a desperate situation, and unless God lights up the runway, you are going to crash. I know you're in that place this morning, and I'm telling you, because I know it's true in David's life, and I know it's true in my life, and there are stories throughout this room where it is true that God is going to deliver you. And his deliverance is worth the wait. You could come up with a solution on your own. You could try to get out of it on your own. But if you will wait patiently and call out on the Lord, he will deliver you. And I'm telling you, God's deliverance is worth the wait. And some of us are in this room this morning, and we're stuck in that place, and you've never called out to God before. I want to tell you that there's one place where we're all stuck, and we all need deliverance. And that is all of us. We are sinners, and we are lost And we have separated our relationship with God by what we've done. And if we will cry out to him because of the grace and the mercy that's available to us through Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with him. And you may not have even just understood everything I said in those few sentences, but I'm telling you that if you will cry out to God, God wants to have a relationship with you. And some of us are stuck in that place, and we just need to be reminded this morning. We need to be reminded this morning. That God has done it in the past in your life, and he's going to do it again if you'll wait on him. Some of us here in this place, we've been unstuck. God's gotten us out of it. You need to tell your story. You need to tell other people what God has done. Just like David does. Because God will use that story to encourage those who need to be delivered. I'm going to invite our worship team back up this morning. And as we close today, I don't know of any better place for us to cry out to God than in church together. What better place is there for us to ask God for his deliverance, to ask God to do his work that only he can do? And so this morning, if you find yourself in that place, If you find yourself in that place where you're in a situation where you need help getting out of it or someone close to you is in that position where they need help getting out of it, they need God to come and deliver them, we want to cry out to God with you. And so my wife and I will be up front. Um, Justin and Alin will be up front. And if you need someone just to pray with you on anything that might be happening in your life or the lives of those close to you, that's why we're here. Please come and pray. It's nothing to be nervous about or ashamed about. This is why we're here. We're not just here to hear a couple of songs and and listen to me go on and on. We are here to experience God together and to encounter his presence together. And so let's take advantage of this opportunity and this time. And if you're here this morning and God has delivered you, why not take some time this morning to praise him and to thank him for all that he has done? I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would. Would you stand with me? And we're just going to get into this time. If you need to spend time up here at these, in the front of the room, you want to come up here and spend some time in prayer, please do. But we want to pray with you. And so God, we thank you. Thank you that you are our deliverer. Thank you that David's story is not just true for David, but it's true for all of us. That you deliver us. You deliver us from sin and shame and guilt that we might have a relationship with you. You deliver us from death that we might live with you for eternity. God, you deliver us from the things of this world. And God, we don't know how you're going to do it. We don't know when you're going to do it. But the thing that we can be sure of is that you are going to come 
through. We thank you for that. I pray for those who are in this room this morning who aren't even sure if this idea is true, who have waited a long time and are wondering if this is even true. God, I pray that you would show them that you are their deliverer, that you are their helper. God, come through, we pray. And move in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments as we close to pray and to sing, to ask God for his deliverance.